Open your Bibles with me, if you would, to the book of Romans chapter 15. Wow, we're getting to the, uh, <laughs> to, to the, the ends of the book. We're not there yet. Still a lot of instruction. But this is where Paul, it's, he is like, he's like a typical preacher. I think he closes this letter like three or four times. <laughs> and, uh, like I do. Uh, he does a, a bit of a soft close here, but then he just kind of gets back going again in some different areas. Uh, it's remarkable. Context is so important, and, and I'm not going to, I'm just going to mention it. But at the end of chapter 13, the Apostle Paul cautioned strongly about living hypocritically. Last week, we looked at the fact that those are hard lines, that you don't get to live both ways <laughs> and, and call yourself a Christian in any meaningful sense, uh, that you can't profess Christ and, and live that way. It's just not, that's not how it works. So moving into chapter 14, which we covered the entire chapter last week, surprise, surprise, it's not something I normally do, and I'm not doing it today. Uh, we looked at the areas of differences between us, which are not hypocritical. So in chapter 13, he says, be careful not to live hypocritically. And then in chapter 14, he says, you know, there are areas where we are, may have strong differences between us that are not hypocritical, but they still have the potential to divide us. And that's why he writes. So we looked again last week briefly by way of introduction into chapter 15, because truly, again, there are no chapter breaks. This is all part of the same discussion that he's having with the people in Rome. Um, we looked at the word adiaphora. Again, not not a, a word that you have to remember, but it's really good if you remember what it means, and it means neutral things. Uh, it means indifferent. It's literally, the literal, trans, literal translation is, is indifferent things. So we looked at how those lines are blurred on purpose with audiophora, with neutral things, with things that are lesser in importance. Why are they left blurred? Because we're different people. We have different tastes. We have different perspectives on things. And yet we looked at how our hearts can remain aligned uh, even in the midst of our differences. And that's why Paul is writing this. He's saying, you know what? This doesn't have to be something that becomes a point of contention between you. The apostle used examples from Judaism. Uh, there are lots of examples in our day that because we're, <laughs> we're a Gentile church and that's it. But he does use examples from Judaism because it was a big deal for them, the large contingent of Messianic Jews in the church at Rome. Uh, he specifically looked at the Jews' dietary laws. <laughs> you got to be careful. You don't. You're not going to have ham on the holidays. He looked at the dietary laws, and he looked at their observance of Shabbat, a Saturday Sabbath. Uh, in chapter 14, he says there's room for both in the body of Christ. Does that mean that we teach both? No, we teach what God's word has to say, but. He uses the terminology here of the stronger brother and the weaker brother. And he plainly states that the stronger brother can eat all things and the weaker brother can only eat vegetables. It's because his conscience is offended. And there's room for that. He states that the weaker brother observes the Sabbath day and the stronger brother sees every day alike. His point in all of it 
is that we don't need to be divided over these things because God has accepted both. And, and folks, <laughs> you can fill in the blank with things in our day, in our culture, where people can get all twisted up. And let it not be named so among us. So our takeaway from all this is that there's room for our, at times, very different opinions on a variety of subjects. A variety of things. As long, and here's the, here's the parameter for that, as long as those opinions don't contradict the biblical standard of morality, that's when it's sin, it's not freedom, it's not a liberty, it's sin, or they don't infringe upon the major doctrines of the Christian faith. You don't get to change it because you don't like it. That's, that's not up for grabs. So, Ignoring, again, ignoring the chapter break, we continue to chapter 15 and further discussing how the strong in their faith in Christ should live in relationship with those who are weaker. Chapter 15, verse 1. He says, we then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. So keep in mind, the weaker brother or sister here is not someone who is somehow less. I know in my mind, I think, well, stronger or weaker? The weaker is somehow less. No, that's not what he's saying. As a matter of fact, he goes the opposite direction. Because the stronger brother is the stronger brother that he says this. Uh, It's upon him to walk in grace in his desire to please others above himself. That's because he has greater understanding. He has perhaps a greater measure of faith or he is more mature. He's been walking with the Lord longer. There's a number of reasons why he would be considered stronger. Doesn't mean that the weaker is less. So the bottom line in this is that it forms a fundamental foundation or truth of what I call others-centered living. There are a number of places, folks, in God's word where he, we are exhorted. Esteem one another as more important than yourself. Excuse me. And when we as a body are doing that, it functions really well. It's when we become self-serving, when we become, you know, opinionated. My opinion counts and yours doesn't. And, and that strife and, and all of that gets stirred up. So the definition here, he says, when we who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak. The scruples, the word scruples, the definition of that is a feeling of doubt or hesitation with regard to the morality or propriety, properness, of a course of action. That's what scruples mean. All right, a scrupulous person then is someone who struggles with the indifferent things that we looked at in chapter 14 in this context as to whether they are moral or proper. So, they're, they're disturbed by that. Keep in mind, the stronger brother here is it's not someone who is unscrupulous. That's a fun word to say. Unscrupulous. But he's someone who understands the nature of the gospel to the extent that they're secure in their knowledge that such things are not immoral or improper. I get that. I understand. I'm not here to push my views on minor things or on indifferent things onto you. Because I want to be taking the mature road on that and thinking, well, you know, I can have my opinion and you can have yours. And I'm going to respect that about you. I'm not going to let that be a thing between us. That's where it gets dangerous. So remember in in Romans 14 that we looked at last week, verse 3 says this. It says, let not him who eats despise 
Remember that word. Despise him who doesn't eat. And let not him who does not eat judge him who eats. For God has received him. So what we see in verse 1 here is that the stronger brother is responsible to bear with his weaker brother. That that's the case. It doesn't mean that the weaker brother is without responsibility. Paul's assertion here is that this is essentially the stronger brother walking in the understanding of the freedoms that he has in Christ. He says, accept the positions of the weaker without criticism or condescension. Don't be condescending towards people who maybe it's like, why I just don't feel like I could eat pork or whatever it is. He says, don't, don't despise him. Don't have a critical attitude towards that. But he doesn't stop there. Conversely, he, the weaker brother must now adopt, uh, he must not adopt a judgmental attitude towards the stronger and assume that the liberties of the stronger brother are hypocrisy when they're not. Uh, I tell you folks, entire denominations have split over matters of audiophora. And, and it saddens my heart when I see people, see people, when I see even individual churches start getting all caught up in the factions that form because we're not walking in this. This is big deal stuff for a church. And Paul wrote this to a church that was straining. It was strained because you had the Messianic Jews on this side. You had these Gentiles that had been heathen, pagan, worshiping guys prior to Christ. And now they're all coming together under one roof. And they're saying, how on earth do we get along? We are so different. And he's saying here, this is how you do it. Verse 2, he says, let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification. Now, when this principle is at work in the body of Christ, we see both positions operating from a place of acceptance of the other. Remember, we talked about principles. There's the principle that I am free to observe Sunday as the Sabbath in my own life. I'm not putting that on anybody else. And then there's the position that the principle is I am free to consider every day alike. The overarching principle here is let each of us please his neighbor for his good. Why? Because then you're not tearing down. Then you're not strained. Then you don't have relationships that are going sideways or off the rails. You have the opposite of that. You have edification, which means to build up. You're building one another up. You're recognizing, you're actually celebrating your differences. The original Calvary Chapel statement of faith years ago, we're talking 55 years ago, whatever, was we're not opposed to denominations as such, only the overemphasis of doctrine that has led to the division of the body of Christ. And I loved that from the day I first read it. I went, I could go with a group like that. Because I look out there and I see all these people pulling and shoving and, and fighting and all of this stuff. And it was like, if that's the church of Jesus, I don't want anything to do with it. It looks just like the world. But then I, in my sort of hippie days and attitudes, kind of stumbled into this group where they're saying, it's okay to be different. We don't care. If you're not sinning, I mean, that's kind of the thing that... When it becomes a thing for God, so it's not a thing for if it's not a thing for Him, it's not a thing for us. That's what it means to be built up. Each position is built up. We're not tearing down one another. So, and, and let's face it, folks. Let's be real. All of us 
left to ourselves. I'm not talking about when we're walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. But but left to ourselves, we can be ornery and cranky <laughs> and divisive people. We can divide needlessly because we dig in our heels over matters that are essentially adiaphora. And we got to guard our hearts. So let us individually determine in our own hearts to not let that happen among us. This is an act of the will. You know, I don't care whether or not you have a Christmas tree. I do care if you are worshiping it. <laughs> I, I, I don't care whether or not you use tobacco. <gasps> I don't. I really don't care. I do care about your health. I don't care whether or not you drink alcohol. I do not. I do care if you drink to excess. That's sin. I do care if you know you shouldn't, and you do so anyway. He says, you know, if you're, if you're going against your own conscience, you better knock it off. You are sinning. I do care. If you stumble a brother or sister, even unknowingly or unintentionally, who may have an issue with alcohol because of your liberty. Serious stuff. But do you see the difference between building up and tearing down? We, with that very same thing that we exercise liberty over, we can tear down a brother or a sister easily. Or we can adopt a, you know what, that's your deal. And I'm not seeing it. You're not crossing the lines. So good for you. Not something I would do. I mentioned last week, you know, I don't want to show up at the hospital and somebody says, hey, pastor, come and pray. And I'm kind of, oh, guys, how's it going? Man, I just had a great bottle of Malbec before, you know, or anything like that. It's just not, it's just not part of it. But we have freedom. We have liberty. He says, all things are profitable, but not everything is, or all things are permissible, but not everything is profitable. There are things that are bad for us. And we get to determine in our own hearts what that is. Folks, this is really important. I hope you're getting the application to us individually and as a church. Really important stuff. They're part of the essence of others-centered living. You look at our great example, the Lord Jesus himself. He spent his life devoted to others. Never for himself. The son of man has no place to lay his head. That didn't mean that he didn't have the ability to go rent a room or whatever. But what he was saying is, it's not about me. It's about you. I'm going to elevate you above myself. As we do that individually, collectively, this thing functions well. Each of us is called to this kind of life. In verse 3, Paul quotes from Psalm 69, verse 9, and he uses Jesus as an example of this other-centered life that Paul's speaking of in verse 2. He says in verse 3, For even Christ didn't please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. So Christ didn't live his life to meet his own desires, but he lived to serve others, and that's the heart of, of what his life looked like. If you look at the temptation narratives in Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, or in Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13, 
you'll see there that Satan tempted Jesus to seek his own glory and to please himself rather than his father. Every one of those temptations was, no, put yourself on the throne and stop considering your father more important than you. And folks, those temptations are the core of the meaning of sin, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. We see it in the garden with Eve and Adam. We see it in the temptations that Christ endured. We see it when John literally spells it out. He says, all that is considered sin is these three. And when we get hung up on the differences between us and we want to assert that we're right and you're wrong, we're not getting it. We're walking in what he's talking about here. So he uses Psalm 69.9 to illustrate just how difficult the Lord's path was in a sinful and selfish and self-seeking, God-hating world. That's why he says, Christ did not please himself. Verse four, he says, for whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through the patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. This verse is packed. He speaks of learning, patience, comfort, comfort, and hope. Uh, he refers back to verse 3, where he's quoting the Old Testament. Paul makes a profoundly important point here. Because while the Old Testament scriptures were not specifically written to us, they were written to Israel or for Israel and all that, but they were and they are by inspiration of the Holy Spirit written for us. Understand that. They were written for our instruction. And folks, when Stacy and I ministered in um, northern Thailand, uh, in Asia, we we recognized that, that man, the, the people there really played down the Old Testament as though it had little value. It was very hard for me to teach the book of Hebrews. I had to add a, another course ahead of the book of Hebrews on an Old Testament survey because they knew very little about the Old Testament. And you try to teach the book of Hebrews with no Old Testament background, it's pretty tough. First year I did that and they were scratching their head through half of the course. The second year I taught both. But the point is, is they downplayed it. No, it is the word of God. While it's true that God implemented a whole new way of relating to man through the cross of Jesus Christ, Uh, and what we refer to as the New Covenant or the New Testament. And we don't live according to the dictates of the law of Moses from the Old Testament. However, we must understand that God's heart is profoundly revealed. We must understand that his character and his nature are described intimately in the Old Testament. We can't assume that his purposes, namely the redemption of humanity, have somehow changed. It's there. That's why all of God's word, Old Testament and New Testament, is considered redemptive history. And and when you look at it, any reference to the scriptures in in the New Testament, when we see here, because these guys all made references to the scriptures, it's a reference to the Old Testament. When Paul would show up at different towns in the Roman Empire, he the first thing he'd do is he'd march into the synagogue on Shabbat and start reasoning from the scriptures. What scriptures? The Old Testament. Packed, beautiful stuff. Yeah, it's a different covenant, but it is the word of God. Here's a ditty that I try to remember. And it's this, it's something that I learned a long time ago. And it's in the old, the new is contained. You see the gospel all over the Old Testament. And in the new, the old is explained. 
So in the old, the new is contained, and in the new, the old is explained. If you get that squared away in your mind, you'll, you won't struggle as many do with trying to reason things out from the scriptures, understanding, uh, that, that yeah, there's parameters. Yeah, it's a different covenant. You know, we just, when we received communion this morning, we talked about the new covenant in my blood. That was because the effect of the law of Moses was terminated at the cross. But not so far as them being, as Paul says here, for our instruction. So as we encounter problems and conflicts and trials, troubles, the scriptures teach us to be steadfast in patience and they impart comfort in the midst of the stormy, stormy seas of life. Folks, we've got to be able to draw from God's word when our lives are going sideways or they're going off the rails. Where else are we going to go? I love what Peter told Jesus. Lord, where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. The Greek word for patience here, um, when he says that in verse four, he says, for whatever things were written before were for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might find hope. The word here is the Greek word hupomone. And it means more than just waiting it out. I'm going to be patient. I'm just going to wait this thing out. This is having the supernatural ability uh, and the capacity to continually bear up. This is part of what sets Christians apart. When your life is just pure hell and you're trying to figure out where you're going to go, how you're going to do it, what's going to happen. I have no idea what to do for all of that. You're overwhelmed by a trial, but you understand that there's a greater power at work in your life, the power of the Holy Spirit, than what you have control over, than what you can assert, than what you can figure out. You bear up. And that's what this word means. It means to bear up. So when we bear up in trials, it's not saying I'm just going to suck it up. It means I understand that the Lord is at work here. I don't understand what he's accomplishing through it. But I do get that I'm part of it. This is part of his plan for my life. It is unfolding. He didn't get up this morning and go, I forgot about John. You know, he doesn't do that. He doesn't sleep for one thing. But the point is, is that it's like we can't reduce him to the workings of a man. He's God. And he is working all things together for our good. So with all of those things in mind, hupomene comes into play. It means more than just waiting it out. It's a, a supernatural capacity that we are given by the Holy Spirit to continually bear up under difficult circumstances. So instead of sinking under the waves, we bear up in the midst of the storm by fixing ourselves on the hope that the Lord will see us through. That's the point when he's talking about hope here, that we through patience are looking for the hope that we have. This is the, this is the path through the storms. Question. How are you doing this morning? You feeling overwhelmed? Struggling in the midst of a trial? your heart burdened with the things of this life? You know, Jesus himself tells us in the world, you will have trouble, tribulation. That's the Bible word for trouble. He says, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. That is another way of saying bear up in the midst of trouble. And what's the outcome of that? Hope. I'm walking in the hope. Sometimes I'm hanging on by my fingernails saying, Lord, I don't get this. This hurts really, really, really bad or whatever it is. But I'm trusting you today. 
I'm trusting that my life is in your hands. I'm trusting that I am hidden in the beloved and that your plans for me are good, even though they look really bad. Folks, maybe that's not you this morning, but something I like to say is if you're not going through a trial, you're either just coming out of one or you're about to head into one. So put this in your spiritual bank account, draw it out when it applies. Verse five, he says, now may the God of patience, again, that word hupomone, he's the God of hupomone. He is the God of bearing up. Think about it. What did Jesus do? He bore it all himself. He says, may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another, according to Jesus Christ. Christ Jesus, what it says there. That you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is one of those passages in which it's really, it's unclear as to whether Paul is praying for them or writing to them. And I think it's both. It's kind of like in Ephesians where he says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. And and then it's just this beautiful prayer, but it's also instruction for us. He was writing to them. He's writing and praying for them at the same time. Either way, his wishes are that we, they, and and by default, we be unified and are like-minded towards one another, not in spite of our differences. Now, understand that. That doesn't mean that we accept. We kind of grudgingly accept one another's differences. No, no, that's walking along and saying, well, I'm going to be accepting in spite of our differences. No, this is an attitude of the heart that has our differences clearly in mind and we're okay. We're good. I'm good with your Christmas tree. I'm good with your not having, you know, I'm good with your liberty. You know, and, and yeah, the parameters are there. I mean, use common sense. So it's, it's not in spite of our differences that somebody's looking at here. That, that, the world can do that. But we can actually be in a place where we can celebrate our differences. Where we can understand, you know what? I don't have that liberty and I, I recognize and I accept the fact that you do, and I'm good. Something I like to say, something I thought about a lot with the whole COVID mess, is why are you making a thing that is not a thing, a thing? And you can figure that out yourself, but you know, with, with so much that's going on and, and the politicization and all of that, it's like, why are people making a thing that's not a thing, a thing? And folks, we can make a thing that's not a thing, a thing, in not walking in this. That's where we stumble. We don't want to stumble somebody else. And there are times where we are stumbled just because we wrestle with these things. And that's okay. I think that at times God wants us to wrestle. So what does he mean when he says, according to Christ here in verse five, he says that be like-minded towards one another, according to Christ Jesus. Well, he gives the answer in verse six, when he speaks of being in one mind and one mouth. What he's saying is putting God's glory in front of every other consideration in our lives. That's what we do. That's how we do it. That's what it is to live an other-centered life. goes against all that we are. Folks, I'm going to tell you, I wrestle with being very self-centered. I think we all do. It's part of our fallen nature. But when I come to a place of being able to esteem, which means to, to... to build up the other person. I'll tell you what, there is no greater sense of knowing that my sacrifice resulted in your good. Because essentially that's what it is. When we're talking about uh, 
giving other people a, a more important place in our minds, in our hearts. We're sacrificing our own opinion. We're sacrificing our own position. We're sacrificing our own need to assert our being right or whatever it is. But as we do that, it's not being disingenuous. It's not being phony. It's being filled with the Spirit. It's a work that He does. I don't do it very well on my own. Um, and all that Jesus did, essentially in thought, word, and deed, He did it for the glory of His Father. That's the point. He sacrificed any aspect of His own personhood, His own self, His own needs, His own desires for the glory of His Father. And Paul's exhortation here is we should have as our aspiration to do the same. Verse 7, he says, Therefore receive one another, just as Christ also received us, to the glory of God. Here, in verse 7, Paul wraps up the thought process which he began back in chapter 14, verse 1, when he began talking about these indifferent things, uh, with the word therefore. What he's saying is, in light of all that I've been saying, here's the bottom line. Receive one another. It's a great summary of all that he's been saying. And he says, remember the manner in which Christ has received you. It'll make it a lot easier to accept other people with their warts and blemishes and quirks and flaws and all. When you stop for a moment and you look at how has Christ accepted moi because of my cracks and warts and blemishes and flaws and all. He says, look at yourself. Look at how you have been accepted in the beloved and have as your attitude to be accepting in the same manner. Grace. As we do this, we not only fulfill God's will for our lives corporately as a church, but our lives individually are enriched. It's good stuff. Verse 7 also serves as a bridge, uh, linking the interactions we have individually with one another with the interaction we have as a body. Uh, I'll explain as we go. Therefore, even though this first section ends in verse 7, where he's talking about adiaphora, we'll begin to see in the next section, we'll start it with the same verse because we're going to see some things that apply to the body in general. In this section, verse 7 through 13, the apostle shows from the scriptures how both Jew and Gentile, which is anyone who's not Jewish, find hope in the Lord. Verse 7 again, he says, Therefore receive one another, just as Christ also received us to the glory of God. So the church at Rome was, again, it was comprised of a large faction of both Messianic Jews and converted Gentiles. And if you look at the beginning of the book of Romans, you see where This is a wild bunch, both sides. The the Jews were fanatically religious. The Gentiles were fanatically heathenistic and and worshiping false gods and into all kinds of crazy immoral stuff. And and all of a sudden you've got these people coming to Jesus and saying, yeah, yeah, I want want Jesus. And and, and they're thrust into the same room (laughs) and they're going, wow, are you different than me? And they're going, well, yeah, but we're here for the same reason. We've got the grace of God, you know, and and Paul sees this as being a genuine, a real concern. Yeah, that was what was taking place in that church. Then it inspired him to write 
Or remember the inspirations from the Holy Spirit and there is direct application to the church through the ages. So in a similar fashion to the way he talked about the weaker brother and the stronger brother and the equal weight of responsibility that each has, Paul now launches into the equal weight of responsibility that Messianic Jews and converted Gentiles have in maintaining unity in the fellowship. Fascinating. I love this section because it's like, I picture these guys, I mean, if it were not, we talk about how different we are in this room. I mean, a bunch of Gentiles from different walks of life and all that. Put us in a room with a whole bunch of guys that have been steeped in Judaism for all of their lives and, and, and have an equal amount of people in the room that have been steeped in nothing but party on all of their lives. And you'd have the potential for a powder keg. And he's saying, hold on, hold it, hold it a second. I was going to say hold the phone, but they didn't have phones. But yeah, he's essentially saying, look, I got to give you some instruction on this because there is a way, there is a path through this. You are vastly different. So he says uh, in verse 8, he says, Now I say that Jesus Christ has become a servant to the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made to the fathers. So Jesus, during his earthly life and, and continuing even now, he became a servant to the circumcised. Now, Israel's identity was closely associated with circumcision, so it's, it becomes a synonymous term. When he's talking about the circumcised, he's talking about the Jews. He's talking about Israel. So Jesus then became, in his earthly life and ministry, a servant to the Jewish people. That's what Paul is saying. And remember, Paul is a dual citizen here. He's a citizen of Rome, and he's also a, a Jew. Uh, and what he's, it's not that Jesus' work on earth didn't also benefit non-Jewish people. Uh, verse 9 will tell us about that. But it's that Jesus here, what Paul is saying is that God was keeping all the promises to Abraham and to the rest of the patriarchs that he had made. He is essentially saying, you have a long history with God, Jewish people. And God used Jesus to fulfill the promises that he'd made. So you have a special place essentially in sending Jesus as the Messiah, God was proven to be a keeper of his promises to Israel. And then we go on into verses nine through 12. There's a series of old Testament quotes. Paul is quoting the Bible again, quoting the scriptures, what they had old Testament stuff, really good stuff that pointed to the fulfillment that they would have in Messiah. So uh, he wants to show now from the Jewish scriptures that the Gentiles have always been a part of God's plan. So it's worth noting here too, that as we get into these last few verses for this morning, um, that he quotes from each section of the Hebrew canon, the canon meaning the scriptures. He quotes from the law, the law of Moses. He quotes from the prophets. And he also quotes from the writings. That's the, the, the poetic writings and so on. So, in verse 9, he says, in that the Gentiles might glorify God. So he says to the Jews, we're given the promises. Jesus came. He fulfilled the promises to the Jews. And that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. It is written, for this reason, I will confess you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. Now, Paul quotes Psalm 18 in saying that Christ also became a servant to the Jews for another reason. So the Gentiles would glorify God for his mercy. Do you see what he's saying here? He's saying, look, this is equal opportunity. 
Jesus had a dual purpose. He had a purpose to Israel and he had a purpose to the Gentiles. When the Israelites, for the most part, refused to come to God through faith in Christ, God offered the gift of salvation, the gift of his grace through faith in Christ to the rest of the world, as we saw in Romans 11. He said, look, I did it because I wanted to include the Gentiles. I also did it to provoke Israel to jealousy. That's how Jesus's mission to serve the Jews resulted in so many Gentiles giving glory to God for his mercy and forgiving their sins and sharing his glory with them. So do you understand the wordplay he's doing here? He's saying, look, I'm bringing both of you groups in. I'm bringing both of you groups onto common ground. This is brilliant, by the way. I mean, I love Paul's strategy here is brilliant. It is absolutely inspired by God. And it's brilliant that he is able to take these so divergent groups of different people and say, look, the scripture speaks to both of you. So in verse 10, he says, and again, he says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. (laughs) So this is a quote from Deuteronomy 32, verse 43. And it's the final verse, that particular verse is the final verse of the song of Moses. Go check it out. It's a beautiful piece of scripture. But it's a cry of victory that calls on the nations to rejoice with Israel that God has delivered his people. And that's why Paul's using it. He's saying, look, this is a cry not just for the Jews, but it's for the whole world, for all of the Gentile nations to worship, to rejoice with his people. So Paul sees this this, this depiction of the Old Testament Gentile nations rejoicing with the Jews And he sees that fulfilled in the New Testament reality of the Jew and Gentile worshiping together in Christ. Verse 11, he says, and again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, laud him, all you peoples. Now, Paul quotes from Psalm 117, which is, it's a short psalm that celebrates God's love and faithfulness. But there's a subtle play on words here that I don't want to miss. In verse 10, Paul quotes Deuteronomy 32 when he says, rejoice with his people, right? In verse 11, there's no mention of worshiping with the Jews. This is the Gentiles. They're worshiping God themselves, not as proselytes to Judaism, but as members now of the body of Christ, which brings Jew and Gentile together. I love Ephesians chapter two, where where Paul talks about, and I've mentioned it before. He talks about on the Temple Mount, there was the Sorig was a wall. Uh, you could go into the court of the Gentiles and, and, you know, the temple would be right there, this huge structure. And, and you could go into the court of the Gentiles and everybody could go onto the temple mount and wander around in the court of the Gentiles until you came to the Sorig. And if you were not Jewish, you couldn't go in there. That was to go into the closer proximity to the temple proper. That's what they accused the apostle Paul of when they arrested him years later, when they said, oh, he brought a Gentile back here behind the sword. You know, and the penalty was death. It was a big deal. So in Ephesians chapter two, Paul says the wall of separation has been taken away. It's gone. There's no, there's no division. In approaching God, there's no longer a division between Jew and Gentile. It's equal access. So he's not talking about the Gentiles worshiping with the Jews here in verse 11. They're worshiping on their own. 
Verse 12, he says, and again, Isaiah says, there shall be a root of Jesse and he who shall rise to reign over the Gentiles in him, the Gentiles shall hope. So finally, Isaiah adds his testimony, the inclusion of the Gentiles in the dominion of the Messiah. So uh, Paul reaches back to Isaiah and he brings out again, he's doing a Bible study with these people. And he's saying, look, you're both included. So stop fighting. <laughs> it's kind of inferred. But the specific point here is that the Gentiles share in the privileges of Messiah and the gospel. That's what he's bringing out. Now, it's interesting too. He says the Lord Jesus is a root of Jesse. He calls him the root of Jesse in the sense, and he is uh, Jesse's creator. Now, I'm going to make a distinction that he is Jesse's creator. He is also from the lineage. Jesse is King David's dad. All right. So he is both creator and the seed of, uh, of Jesse. In Revelation 22, 16, Jesus speaks of himself as the root and offspring of David. Both. As to his deity, he's David's creator. As to his humanity, he's David's descendant. I just, I, I just brought that out because it's kind of fun to look at. Doesn't have a lot of bearing here. No, but I mean, it's, it's true. I mean, we see both sides here. Verse 13, the last verse we're going to look at this morning. He says, now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So, well, now when God says, or when Paul says, now may God fill you, the God of hope fill you, he's referring to Jew and Gentile alike. He's brought them into one. Talked about them separately. Now he's putting them all into the same category. All right. He is the God of hope for both. It's God's specific will to fill his people with joy and peace in believing. The result of that is hope. That's what he's simply bringing out. Something that I think is really important that we understand is why does the Bible say that the joy of the Lord is my strength? Think about it. Have you ever thought about it? Happiness. All right. There's my soul, my me. That's, that, that's my soul. Happiness is communicated to my soul by my circumstances. I may be in really lousy circumstances and I might not have a smile on my face. I may be unhappy because my circumstances aren't good. On the other hand, As somebody who is born again, who is filled with God's spirit, his spirit bears witness to my spirit, which communicates to my soul joy. Much deeper, really different. And joy is not the same as happy. Folks, the joy of the Lord is our strength because it's communicated to me, not by my circumstances, but by the spirit of God himself. And when we're walking in that, when we're walking in that kind of joy, the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace, which is the peace that passes understanding. These are aspects of the fruit of the Holy Spirit in our lives. That's why he says, by the power of the Holy Spirit. So as I'm walking through really tough stuff, as I'm going through the stormy seas, as I'm going through a trial, I'm going through things that I had no idea were coming my way, I can have joy. It's part of what, again, it's part of what sets us apart. Now, when he talks about hope, he's not talking about, now, a lot of times we look at the word hope as hope so, I hope so. Oh, I hope so. <laughs> I hope I get a raise. No, he's not talking about that kind of hope. 
This isn't a hope so hope. This is a no so hope. I know in whom I believed. I know that his promises are sturdy and reliable. I know that his grace is upon my life. I know that at the other end of all of this junk I'm going through is heaven in, in for eternity with him. I know that I know I believe that in my heart of hearts and I therefore have no so hope. This is a certain hope. This is a sturdy hope. This is a hope that is durable. It's not fleeting. Like I hope I get a raise and then I don't. Well, I have so much for hoping in my raise. No, this is a durable hope. And it's only a hope that can come by the power of the Holy Spirit in those who believe. So as we wrap up this morning, I want to read a bit of a lengthy excerpt from uh, about this passage from uh, a guy by the name of William Barclay. Uh, this is a guy whose theology and commentary I deeply respect. He's one of the big guns in my life. I, I study him a lot. And I came across this as I was preparing for this morning. I went, you know what? I'm not going to just use aspects of that. I'm just going to read the whole thing because it's, this is rich. This passage has given us a wonderful summary of the marks which should characterize the fellowship that we share. Seven marks of healthy Christian fellowship. And I'm going to go through all of them and we'll wrap up. Number one, our fellowship should be marked by the consideration of its members for one another. Always their thoughts should be not for themselves, but for each other. It is not the toleration which tolerates because it is too lazy to do anything else. It's the toleration which knows that people may be won much more easily to a fuller faith by surrounding them with an atmosphere of love than by attacking them with a battery of criticism. It's good stuff. So our fellowship should be marked by consideration for one another. The second thing here, he says, our fellowship should be marked by the study of scripture. And from that study of scripture, Christians draw encouragement. Scripture from the point, from this point of view provides us with two things. The first is it gives us a record of God's dealing with the nation. I'm looking at that this morning. The biblical history of Israel in its demonstration of the events of history that ultimately life turns out well for the good, but evil comes to the wicked. Scripture demonstrates not that God's way is ever easy, an easy way, but in the end, it is the only way to everything that makes life worthwhile in time and in eternity. The second thing about the study of Scripture is it gives us the great and precious promises of God. These promises are the promises of a God who never breaks his word. Folks rely on that. In these ways, Scripture gives to those who study it, comfort in their sorrow and encouragement in their struggle. The third thing we look at about uh, having healthy Christian fellowship is our fellowship should be marked by fortitude. Talk about that a bit. Fortitude is by definition, it's courage in, in the midst of pain or adversity. It's an attitude of the heart towards life itself. Again, we meet this great word, hupomone, the one I talked about earlier. Uh, it is far more than patience. It is the triumphant adequacy which can cope with life. 
It is a strength which does not accept things, not only accept things, but which in accepting them transforms them into glory. And I was thinking about Genesis 50, where Joseph told his brothers, you meant it for evil against me, but God worked it for good. Fourth thing we see here is our fellowship should be marked by hope. Christians are always realists, and we are, but never pessimists. Our hope is not a cheap hope. It is not the immature hope of which is optimistic because it does not see the difficulties and has not encountered the experiences of life. It might be thought that hope is the prerogative of the young, but the great uh, artists did not think that. When the painter, this is good, when the painter G.F. Watts drew hope, he drew her as a battered and bowed figure with only one string left upon her lyre. Our hope is seen everything and endured everything and still not despaired because it believes in God. It is not hope in the human spirit, in human goodness, or in human achievement. It is hope in the power of God. The fifth thing we look at here is our fellowship should be marked by harmony. However ornate a church may be, however perfect its worship and its music, however liberal its giving, it has lost the very first essential of a Christian fellowship if it has lost harmony. That's not to say that there will not be differences of opinion. It's not to say that there will not be, uh, that there will be no argument or debate. But it means that those who are within our fellowship will have solved the problem of living together. They will be quite sure that Christ, the Christ who unites them is greater by far than the differences which may divide them. The sixth thing we see here is our fellowship should be marked by praise. It's no bad test to apply to people to ask whether the main uh, accent of their voices is one of grumbling discontent or cheerful thanksgiving. Christians should enjoy life because they enjoy God. I got to stop here for a second. You know, Bob, my spiritual father, who sort of discipled me for, gosh, nearly 30 years. I remember calling him one day and I was having a problem with a guy in my business uh, and there was a big deal going on, and, and I, I got to talk to this guy. And, <laughs> and Bob said, "Do you want to have a tough ministry?" Because my business was a ministry; it was like a little church. Guys were coming to the Lord. I was baptizing most of my employees and all that. But he says, "Do you want to have a tough time?" He said, "Go ahead. Get out there and do what God needs to do. <laughs> You're not going to be able to do it very well." And, and it, he says, "You know, John." I I hang out with a lot of pastors and I hang out with a lot of pastors that are really unhappy and they grumble a lot. But you know, God's privileged me with having this ministry and I own this and I want to just enjoy the ministry that God's given me. And, And you know, those were such encouraging words to me. I backed off and then I watched God fix the problem that I was about ready to go and make a mess of. Doesn't mean there's never a time to talk but it was a great life lesson for me to enjoy the ministry, enjoy the life that God has given me. He says, Christians should enjoy life because they enjoy God. They will carry their secret within them for they will be sure that God is working all things together for good. The seventh thing that we look at, the final thing here, this is in the essence of the matter is that our fellowship takes its example, its inspiration and its dynamic from Jesus Christ. He did not please himself. 
the quotation which Paul uses from Psalm 69. It is significant that when Paul speaks of bearing the weaknesses of others, he uses the same word as is used of Christ bearing his cross. Bastazane. When the Lord of glory chose to serve others instead of to please himself, he set a pattern which everyone who seeks to be his follower must accept. Essentially, what Barclay is saying in all of this is we're all in this together. That's the part that we have in the body of Christ. Differences, yeah, they abound. Lots of different opinions. I love the fact that our fellowship is marked by harmony. That we're learning together how to get along with each other. We're learning together to not just tolerate our difference, but to celebrate them. We're not all there yet. I'm not there yet. But we're all a work in progress and we're a work in progress together. That's the point. That's Paul's point here in these opening verses of Romans 15. He's saying, look, you're all in this together. I know that there are big differences between you, but you really can get along and you can do more than get along. You can celebrate your differences and you can actually enjoy your common calling to be mine. Let's pray. Father, as we look at these things, Lord, I know that you speak to my heart through these things that I can't speak these things to your people without being the first partaker. And there are times, Lord, where I wrestle. And yet I know that you're good and I know that you're working. I know that your word is coming to bear in my life because it has that conforming power. Lord, I pray for myself. I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room that you would give us the ability to see beyond our differences, to see, Lord, that you are the Lord of all of us. And and with exception to those areas that are sin or, or basic misunderstandings, Lord, give us hearts that are open. Give us hearts that are, that are able to embrace one another. Give us hearts, Lord, to understand that some are less mature. Some are more mature. That some are weaker in faith. Some are stronger in faith. Lord, I see in this, there's absolutely room for both. I see in this that there's responsibility for both. Lord, let us leave here keeping those things in mind. Check us for our pride. Check us for, Lord, for those areas that don't glorify you. Continue, we pray, to conform us to the image of your son. We give ourselves afresh to you, Lord. Pray that you would do it in Jesus' name. Amen.